Hey everybody, welcome to the Bullish Rippers YouTube channel. We post all the recordings of the Rippers Twitter spaces to this page. So, if you ever miss the Twitter spaces, this is the place to come and check. Make sure you're subscribed and hit that like button if you enjoy. But let's get rolling here for the evening. So, everybody welcome on in to an evening of market analysis, specifically on the oil and energy industries. We have done a couple spaces in the past on oil and energy, but... None, while gas has just been ripping and so many other things are going on in the world and there seems to be both macro and micro things to look at here. So we wanted to get a couple of people who have knowledge on the industry in here and just have a chat and talk about opportunities in this area. So with that being said, SoFlo, you kind of reached out the last time and initiated the space. So I'd love to start with you here and get a little bit of maybe an update as to you know what's been going on in this industry since the last time we talked, what's new, what you're paying attention to just kind of a macro outlook and then we can dig in from there. Hey, what's going on guys? So yeah, it's crazy. I still remember uh, the day I just slid in your DMs and I'm like, Hey, Hey Wolf, let's, uh, or, or bullish rippers now. Um, let's, let's host an energy space. Let's uh, talk about oil. I have a feeling something's going to go on with oil. And since then there has been a lot more than we expected. Right. So um, <clears throat> I definitely want to connect the dots from last time we talked and essentially lead into a new, um, I guess, new data, new, you know, outlets that we've seen. <clears throat> so since last time we talked, we, we, we did discuss a few things. I know, you know, Matt and I were up here and a few others were up here as well. Uh, we did discuss that oil crude is more than likely going to surpass 100. Did we see that? We did. We did talk about how um, the fed or not the fed sorry that biden would try to tap into the oil emergency oil reserves that we have before midterm elections come around did that happen yes that's happening right now so it's it's kind of crazy to see a lot of things play out as we were forecasting and looking at so i i just want to definitely connect those dots we talked about some of our favorite names back then, which included Chevron. And we all know what happened in Chevron in the past. Uh, well, obviously, right now it's selling off. But during the oil run, we saw what happened with Chevron. So going off of that, <clears throat> a lot of people are wondering now, like, OK, did, did we just top out? You know, what's going on? Oil prices just started selling off the past uh, week, I would say now. Um, but. You know what? I, I am going to talk about that a little more. So those of you that don't know already, uh, my background is in engineering and finance. Uh, matter of fact, I did live in the Dubai region for about 12 years, and I literally witnessed that country go from a pure desert to a city with literally the tallest towers in the world, right? Um, and before coming a full-time trader, I was also an engineer within the energy industry. So it's, it's an industry that I did come familiar with uh, through experience as well. Uh, the term energy obviously is thrown around a lot and uh, not many people, people just think it's oil or pure gas or solar panels or, you know, windmills and wind turbines. That's, it's not exactly what it is. And obviously we do want to focus a little more on oil gas. Um, but to really understand the types of investment opportunities that come in energy, uh, it's important to understand some of the fundamentals. I know as a young investor, you may be thinking, or those of you that are, you know, younger investors out there, uh, you may be thinking, you know, why on earth are we still talking about oil and gas? I thought that was the time of, you know, 2014. But uh, at the end of the day, we unfortunately are, we're not using 100% clean energy right now. And believe me, 
Um, all for this innovation and improving efficiency of our energy industry. But at the end of the day, you cannot ignore the current demand. So the, the U.S. power generation, just so you guys kind of understand what's going on, the U.S. power generation, it is broken up into a few different uh, demands. And 60% of the demand of our energy and power generation is through fossil fuels. And I want to just say fossil fuels because it's not just oil and gas. Uh, and the energy industry itself can really be simplified into supply and demand. Uh, back in April of 2020, uh, the price of a barrel was literally trading at pennies. When I say the barrel, I'm talking about WTI crude. It was literally trading at pennies. And we hit nearly $130 a barrel just a two weeks ago, uh, which is the highest it's been since I, I think it's 2014. Is that because, you know, everyone's driving an EV? No, that's just because we have a massive imbalance of supply and geopolitical issues. Uh, that is really the focal point of what's going on and what we've seen the past uh, couple of months now. Uh, you know, you've those of you that have followed for a while, you guys know that I've predicted many different market rotations in and out of energy. Uh, last year, we did see the energy industry outperform the S&P 500. And I'm saying that because it's important to know that a lot of finance individuals and, and, and traders, investors, they like to use oil as more of a hedge towards the market. Now, why did I say that? It outperformed the S&P. Well, oil is also used as a, as a leading indicator where people are anticipating some sort of fear, inflation, or whatever it may be. And as you can see, we saw what the market did in the past from January to February. Obviously, today the market went crazy, but let's just let's just focus on what we saw kind of play out. Um, <clears throat> so does that mean we topped out? You know, is this is this the end? Is this the end of oil? Um, I, I do think we are going to continue experiencing more supply issues uh, that will probably carry on to the end of this year. The industry is also in a transition to uh, go towards lower carbon futures with clean energy, which is something that a lot of investors are looking at as well. So I do believe that price, the, the price of crude is about to peak soon. Uh, and I do believe that I'm not, that doesn't mean it's going to fall, right? I, I'm not anticipating that the price is going to just fall. And with the U.S. trying to increase its output and OPEC keeping things the same, I believe we will continue to see these high prices for the foreseeable future. Uh, if there's any sort of indication uh, of a potential decrease in prices, I would only see that coming around October. Yes, within the last one to two weeks, we did see oil sell off. And we also saw tech rally. So one thing that's interesting, is just, just like what I explained, those two sectors tend to move inversely. So if, when we're talking about tech and tech's rallying, you usually don't see oil rallying. Whenever there's uncertainty in the market, you see commodities rise. And, and I do have this chart pulled up in front of me. Um, only, I guess, <laughs> I'm on TikTok Live as well. They could probably see the chart. But it shows that the natural gas is up about 91% from uh, one year. And above natural gas is coal. Right under natural gas is uranium. So there's a lot of other commodities in this, in the energy and oil and gas sector that uh, a lot of investors are paying attention to. So I, I do think all of those commodities are going to have extremely high demand moving forward, especially, especially for the U.S., considering that we are the highest consumers 
in oil and gas per capita. Uh, but with that being said, guys, I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, like last time we talked, um, I was saying, yeah, like I, I vaguely said, yeah, I think we're going to go over a hundred and then boom, 130. That was insane. Obviously, un- unfortunately, uh, that was due to war as well. That was one of the reasons, but uh, with that being said, I don't think it's going to stay. Um, I don't think it's going to just drop. I, th- I think the price is going to remain high, at least going into October. And if we do increase our output and if OPEC in the Middle East does increase our output, which is a very, very big wild card and it is extremely political, which I don't really want to talk about right now, then we might see some pullbacks in prices come October. If we don't see that, then there there is a chance that we will continue. Oh no, did my thing disconnect? Let's see. We got you on here. You're good. Oh, I got I got an error on my uh, on my screen, but I guess we're good. Yeah. So if if oil if OPEC doesn't increase and we don't increase our output, uh, then I do think we're going to continue seeing you know WTI natural gas uh, break. All, not all-time highs, break 130 um, within the next month or so. That's what I would anticipate. So, yeah, that's pretty much my take on it for now. Really good start there. Love the overview. You're correct. You made some great predictions on that last one, and I like how you explained the reasoning on the necessity for you know fossil fuels at this point and the key reserves and OPEC, and there's so many different pieces playing into this. So I just want to continue along this line. We have some great speakers here with tons of knowledge. Hope you continue to share it. I think SoFlow just showed it a great way that we're getting into this. So, Jack, would you like to bounce off that go next with some insight into what you've been looking at in this industry? Sure. Yeah, really appreciate uh, the background there. It's happy. I'm happy to see an additional you know, chemistry or chemical engineer background talking about energy. It's uh, not, you know, it's rare to find that. And it's nice. It's, it's refreshing to hear a balanced view that's kind of, you know, all encompassing. Um, I also, just for anyone who doesn't know, uh, worked for ExxonMobil for about seven, seven and a half years, uh, multiple divisions, but mainly uh, R&D as well as downstream and some chemical work on, you know, fuel cells and things of that nature. Um, currently, I mean, there's so much to talk about when you talk about energy. I think similar to what your previous guest talked about, it's important to look at the global electricity demand, obviously, for the statistic that he pointed out. Um, and I think it's going to be more and more relevant for people to really monitor the electricity that displaces oil and gas and other, you know, uh, forms of energy in that electrification sector. Because uh, one of the things at Exxon that people were saying before it hit, obviously, 135 was lower for longer. And there's a whole nother element to the oil and gas sector that you have to be considering as well, which is the refining side. And part of these, some of these uh, players are vertically integrated and they have exposure to both upstream, midstream, downstream, um, and, beca- and chemicals. And so that allows them to. Did we lose him? Yep. We lost Jack. Oh, he'll probably come back surging in in 10, 20 seconds. Hey, while we're getting Jack back, if anybody else is able to share out the space, I tagged a bunch of y'all in a tweet. Would be awesome if people could share that out, help us get some more people up in here. I think this is some really valuable information. And thank you to anyone in the crowd that's able to share that as well. All right, Jack, do we have you? Oil is. Talk I'm about here. Simon. Can you guys hear me? Cool. Yeah, you cut out for like. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, I was getting. A, I was getting a call. Um, so, uh, uh, what was the last thing that you heard me say? I'll. I don't want to lose anything. Um. Honestly, you were like 30 seconds after your intro. Oh shit. Okay. Uh. 
Okay, so anyway, yeah, uh, oil and gas uh, experience, seven and a half years at Exxon, uh, you know, been investing since I was 15 years old. Um, I'm a value investor if anyone wants to ask, but it's it's really uh, very centric in the energy space. I focus majority right now on sustainable energy, renewables, long duration energy storage, small modular nuclear reactors, and then circular uh, material economies. So things like plastic recycling, battery recycling, et cetera. So oil and gas side, I really just wanted to highlight the fact that, uh, you know, it's important to understand the metrics of the market in this regard and understanding the electricity output, as the previous uh, speaker noted, is a very large portion of, of why fossil fuels and other uh, non-renewable sources are used. And so until that delta can be met with other alternatives, we really don't have any other option unless we want to drastically change our quality of life. And so as one of the most, uh, you know, biggest, one of the biggest proponents of renewable or sustainable energy, um, you have to come to terms with the fact that for, you know, today, it would be radically difficult or painful to actually switch over, you know, tomorrow. And so what, what's important to monitor is the displacement of fossil fuels in different markets, in my opinion, and the pace at which that happens. And so, what you saw, you know, what you saw in the most recent price spike, I don't, I don't want to repeat much of what your previous uh, guest stated. He did it so eloquently, um, but it, it also has to do with that supply shock. I mean, the market environment and the panic related to the the events, as well as the Fed, is one thing. But if you just look at it from a supply and demand perspective, it really had to do with a very tight market that was also compounded with a, a, a seasonally excessive uh, refining schedule that was outed because of you know seasonal weather as well as uh, traditional maintenance um, that was higher than expected. And in addition to that, you have the lack of additional output from various countries or indications thereof. And so um, I, I think Venezuela, Iran, Saudis uh, are very interesting to see what they posture over the coming days because when those people put together their budgets and decide whether or not to pump out oil, it's not as if oil and gas wants everything to be, you know, two hundred dollar oil because that's not sustainable either. And also, you have the fact that high oil does impact economies, maybe not as much as it did in the past, but it could have it could have drastic economic repercussions. And so, there is a pull and a push uh, where you want oil in the sweet spot where you know oil and majors can make their money, but they're not going to cause the economy to go into some type of recession because of uh, undue uh, hindrance on the on the consumer. And so you're, you're kind of playing with that balance. And then the, the other thing I wanted to mention was the refining aspect to, to uh, oil and gas and why it's really important to understand that some oil and gas companies are vertically integrated where they have exposure to upstream, midstream, downstream, maybe as well as chemicals, greases, and specialty chemicals. And so uh, those particular players are more uh, suitable to buoy these movements in price, and they can make money when oil is 135 but they can also make money when it's 45 because the cheaper oil is actually better margins for the chemical side and vice versa. And so they can adjust their business in different market environments. If they're savvy in doing so, they're rewarded. If not, then they actually can miss these, uh, these price swings. And so um, for some of those players, they're not rooting for higher oil all of the time, but when they're, when they're well positioned, they obviously do. Um, and so, I mean, that's my, you know, my spiel. I'm happy to entertain any questions related to that. I, I think the most important thing that I, I'm going to start monitoring more actively is that displacement of electricity generation and distribution 
related to oil and gas, because I think that's the bread and butter when you start electrifying everything is that, you know, oil and gas is still going to be responsible for a very large amount of electricity generation and distribution. But when that's no longer the case, if that's no longer the case, oil and gas becomes almost niche um, in the electricity distribution space. And so the, the only markets they have left are plastics, products, uh, you know, turbines, I guess, airplanes, even though those could be electrified, you know, theoretically, and uh, space travel for fuels like methane and such, um, oxygen, and, and, and chemical conversion of materials, which is their specialty, right? And so, you know, th- th- it's a very interesting scenario where electricity generation gets displaced to a very large extent. And I think that the makeup of oil and gas will actually look radically different. I think they look like majority chemical companies with some upstream exposure, um, but not to the extent that you see today. I mean, Exxon is probably 60 to 70% exposure to upstream. Um, That will look very different in the future if electricity becomes renewable and sustainable by alternative sources like, you know, small modular nuclear reactors, long duration energy storage, and all these other topics. Hey, Jack, for those who are, first of all, that was great. Um, for those who aren't familiar, could you just give like 30 seconds on upstream, downstream? Oh, you got it. So upstream is uh, extraction of the resource. And so what traditionally would happen in the oil and gas space, and anyone jump in here if, if, if you uh, if you want to chime in at any point. I'm certainly not the foremost expert, but I'm happy to go through it. Uh, you have to extract the resource from the ground, right? So that takes equipment, manpower, pressure, water, all these components that you have to engineer the solution to get it out of the ground, whether it's oil sands, uh, fracking, or if it's deep sea or Arctic, you know, all these different conditions, and that costs a lot of money. Now, you have to somehow calculate an ROI for that upstream project, and usually the oil and gas companies would either use free cash flow or cash in the balance sheet, or they would go out and do loans with banks to fund those projects so that by the time that they had the project completed and extracting and making money from the oil, they can pay back those loans with interest uh, at nearly, you know, at nearly no cost when you factor in the whole lifetime uh, revenue of the oil over that, you know, resource. Um, downstream is well, midstream is the uh, movement, storage, conversion of the material from the from the well, if you will, into uh, into the refinery. And that's midstream. And so that has to do with people like energy transfer, you know, Keystone Pipeline would technically be a a midstream project. Um, And that's, you know, that's a very intricate system and market within itself. And that has to satisfy multiple market segments. So it's not just one barrel of oil going in one direction. You have to think about things like naphtha, uh, you know, uh, distillates. You have to talk about uh, sour from this region or not sour from that region and Everywhere in the world has different oil that has different compositions that has different needs. And so midstream is really learning where those those fractions or those compositions should go and why, and then, you know, distributing them adequately for the world's energy needs. And so downstream um, is more of the refining uh, and the conversion of the materials into all these different applications. And so downstream is really you, you have this barrel of crude. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands of different molecules in that batch. And some of them are better for different applications than others, you know, and they crack differently and they split differently and they boil and distillate differently. And so you've got to decide in today's moment in time, 
based on that crude's composition, where's the best place for each of these fractions of the, of the barrel to go both for the energy demand of the world, but also obviously as a company for the company's bottom line. And so, you know, there's, if you, if I could put it in basic terms, there's tops and there's bottoms, right? And the tops is like the lightest things like jet fuel, things like naphtha, uh, and then at the bottom of the barrel, you have the heaviest crude that is going into things like asphalt uh, and thing and things of that nature. And so if you think of it that way, picture a column and there's thousands of, of different slots in this column and you have to choose where and when those different parts of the column have to be distributed geographically, but also market wise to make sure that your bottom line, you know, works out to what you projected. And so that's kind of what oil and gas people are doing on a daily basis um, based on what they're extracting, where they have to distribute it and which market is best to serve at this point in time. Perfect. Well said. Thank you, Jack. Really appreciate you being on here and breaking all that down. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, Matt, I would love to bring you into here. So we've heard kind of the upstream downstream. We've heard a little bit on the, you know, actual, What's going on behind the scenes? I feel like there's more gaps to be filled in here. What should retail be paying the most attention to in all of this? Uh, yeah, let me go ahead and chime in. It's it's so great to have everybody here. I actually had a I had a chat with Jack uh, about a week or so ago. Uh, Jack's uh, what uh, I think you're a chemist, right? Correct. You have a bachelor in chemistry, stuff as a chemical engineer. I also am a chemical engineer, or was. Uh, my background also in oil and gas. I was a reaction and reactor design engineer. I was a run plan at Dow Chemical. I used to run acrylic acid monomer unit. And these days, I used to write statistical and um, growth uh, catalyst wear and tear models for chemical reactors. Now I do the same thing, extracting market maker options from options data. It's numbers, it's just something different. And I love the idea that people have such complexity in terms of trading. Engineers a lot of the time end up getting into this environment. Uh, when I worked in oil and gas, uh, part of my tenure there was to plan around it. And I'll answer your question in a second, but just to say something that's kind of a cool um, aside is that um, we would buy catalysts to repack the reactors anywhere from uh, five to $10 million. You can repack, react, uh, the reactor get repacked, sorry on a schedule of anywhere between like three and seven years and different batches would have different lifetimes. You can run it faster when you need more production, but you'll burn it out faster. So it was an economic model to decide optimally when you needed to um, repack your reactors and buy this catalyst. You had to buy it year in advance, test it out, then turn it in. So basically we had to study the commodities markets because the catalyst we use, I can't talk about the proprietary recipe, but it used a lot of metals and a lot of those metals come from around the world. So we would watch commodities markets and commodities prices and study trends as part of my job as a reaction engineer. So it kind of got me a little taste of the commodities market back in the day. So it was an easy segue for me to get into trading uh, commodities when I first got started. Uh, I started trading oil as one of my first things I, well, the first thing I traded in stocks is bank stocks. When I really got serious about trading, I was trading oil futures. And it was just a natural segue for my experience in studying commodities markets to really kind of dive into it. I had experience from that point of view. And then um, I just kind of, as I learned trading, got really interested in all the economics that go into it, supply, demand, usage, production, everything. Um, so as far as retail's biggest concern is how come, and you hear this question all the time, is how come uh, Russian 
issues when we don't use a lot of Russian crude are affecting crude prices locally. And there's a lot more to it. And I, and I, I, I want to build a thesis for a lot of people is that the, the, the crude oil pricing issues that we're having now is I think is still more related to COVID than it's related to Russia. I think the, the natural spike we've seen, obviously, um, short squeezing against the, the possible issues that's going on in Russia. But uh, I've made a few arguments on my, on my tweets, and I shared all of them above. Uh, the main one being the commitment of traders. And you can actually see the commercials. If you look at the commitment of traders, it's a report that shows how the different future or the futures themselves are held by different categories. And CFTC reports this once a week, and it kind of tells a story. But can I always talk about it when I talk about the index products? But when I talk about oil, it's almost just as important to understand this for that. And actually, probably even more important since a commodities uh, have, a, have a lot more, I guess, short-term catalyst and changes than, say, an equities market is. That's more a little more diversified. So you can see what the little section I, I shared at the top. It says commercials, right? Producer, merchant, processor, user. And there's a little red line that I circled that's been amping up since basically the middle of 2021. Everybody remembers kind of April 2020 when the carry cost of that contract became so much, it was it exceeded the barrel of oil by another 40 bucks and oil went negative for that contract, right? Ever since then, um, we haven't seen much else other than oil recovering back or the contract price recovering back to the spot price, normal average over the last couple of years. But ever since about middle 2021, we started seeing a change. And a lot of that comes down to, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to share with the group. Uh, let me pull up a, a chart really quick. I need one. Uh, so the the one thing is is why why would there and actually let me talk about the commercial traders before I go into this one. So there's those four categories in that red producer, merchant, processor, user. Jack talked about a couple of them. I'll explain how they fit into oil futures. Um, a producer would be somebody that produces a commodity. It means they create it, they pull it out of the ground, they find it, they grow it, whatever. You you've produced something, which means you brought it into existence. Um, a processor is somebody who takes that thing and makes it into something else. A great example is an oil refinery. They take oil, they make gasoline out of it. Um, a user is somebody that uses the commodity. For instance, you somebody grows corn and um, a, per, a processor would make it into popcorn. A user would just buy the corn and eat it like a restaurant. So a user demolishes the commodity and removes it from existence. It doesn't convert to anything else. And a merchant is that midstream middleman that, that uh, Jack was mentioning. And a merchant's a person who trades it from the middle, or they store it, or they move it, or they transport it. So you can see that the net commercial long has grown significantly month over month since the beginning of 21, or middle of 21. And why is that? Well, if you look at the if you really look at the stats, it's because the world oil demand has been growing very rapidly since COVID. We took a nosedive, and I think that the total world demand was right about 91 million barrels a day. And since quarter one of 21 through the end of the year, it went to 93, 95 and a half, 97 and a half, 100. You know, COVID made a lot of people stay at home, and a lot of people stay at home, burn a lot of extra energy, right? So we're, the demand is going up. At the same time, you have the the uh, the the OPEC members, so I can show them. There's a, a couple of things that are going on. OPEC production's been growing since COVID, but it's still not anywhere close to what it was pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, OPEC was producing 32 million barrels, and we're only producing 29. Just think, all through 2021, they choked the oil supply, and they were really down about 6 million barrels a day when demand was was pretty much at 
uh, the highs it's been for the longest time. So that's that has a longer term effect than oil prices. And you just see that, like, why the price of the pumps here are very high. Um, sure, it's temporarily refre- reflecting what's happening in, in Russia, but that was going to grow anyways because of the way the way that the supply and demand is, is going. And you know that in European markets, I think Russia produces maybe 10 million barrels of the, the 90-something million that's, that's produced. So they're about one-ninth of the, the world's oil supply. And I think 60% of their oil goes to Europe. So we don't really use a lot of their oil. So the thing is that, that Europe is not taking Russian oil. They need to get it from somewhere else. So they're already a choked supply mode. Europe needs other suppliers. It's really hard just to pick up oil from anywhere else because your refinery... You have to think of it like this, right? A refinery is designed to process oil into something else. But as Jack has said, oil is made of infinite number of chemicals. Oil is not the same anywhere else, and you can't just switch oil easily. If you if your plant buys a certain kind of oil when you design a plant, which is the first thing you did out of college, was designing parts of refineries, is that you have to have a certain spec of oil, specification. It has to have a certain amount of salt, a certain amount of water, a certain amount of metals, and you design into that, which means if you go out of spec, your your plant can't process the product that your clients need. So any kind of oil is useless and you have to retrofit your plant. It takes a long time to do that. If you need to switch crude, sometimes you need to install a lot of equipment. And that takes, you know, anywhere between depending on fast track project or not, you maybe already have it designed, takes one to three months, get it shipped and installed. What is the lead time on that? And the in the period of transportation logistical problems, the lead times are probably very long. So it's not quick to turn around your plant and buy a new uh, you know, I don't like a like a I don't know uh, whatever equipment they would need. You know, remove extra water, remove extra salt. You may need another another piece of equipment that may take nine months to ship. So because people know that they're in a bind, it's going to be hard for people to swap to a new kind of crude, and um, that just causes prices to go up. And that's causing our prices to go up because as we're a global exporter as well, um, you know, the demand. Uh, is perceived to go up in Europe, and they may have to come this way. So the idea is that that, that won't stabilize uh, for a while. And, and even when rigs turn back on, it's not just the immediately when we turn on rigs, you get oil pumped into the market to bring it down. If you look at the, the rig counts, in which I look at every week, um, ever since COVID, I think uh, we, used to, we had about, about 1,000 rigs turned on, give or take. And towards the end of 2020, we're down to 800. At the beginning of 2020, the U.S. rig count was down in the low 400s. I mean, nobody was really, you know, there wasn't a lot of demand for our crude at 40 to 50 to 60 dollar break even points. A lot of our shale rigs are in the 70 to 100 dollar break even. So they're not even profitable, so they don't turn on. It's taking now month over month to finally start seeing rigs come back on. But still, it takes a month or two to staff them, get them up to full production and then find somebody to store it and ship it which again, shipping's a problem. So there's all these logistical things still related to COVID that are causing oil prices to not easily stabilize and be very sensitive to global effects. I wouldn't think that if we didn't have COVID, I don't think uh, Russian conflict would have spiked oil to 130 bucks. I think the, um, the cartel choking supply at a time when we're not producing a lot at just the right time um, post-COVID has just made oil sensitive to any kind of news like that. Because remember, when we broke to 130, 150 bucks, it was a direct conflict between three oil producing countries, us, Afghanistan, and Iraq. That's a huge deal, right? And that explains the $150 oil when we got that in the in the ramp up to 2008. 
but you know Russia invading Ukraine the the reason for you know people thinking or, or the oil price is going up I mean you're just getting a lot of short covering a lot of short squeezing people know that if you look at that commitment of traders that the producers are trying to guarantee that they get oil shipped to them that's why they're buying the net long of contracts is going up every single piece of the production chain wants to guarantee they get the oil coming their way and that's why you see more of them are trusting the futures market than they are trusting their you know oil broker on the spot market which is typically just a phone call away so they're relying heavily on on futures markets and that's been squeezing shorts a lot a little bit harder so in reality you know our our oil prices or our gasoline prices aren't going to stabilize anytime uh soon they're not going to clearly if you ever traded oil before you're going to see it being volatile but you're not going to see it probably sell off or crash from here I think that it'll probably stay elevated between you know ninety and a hundred for kind of a while, um, but oil has a secondary kind of, I guess I'd say an effect is that you know in cost push inflation, which is where the price of goods and services or commodities prices go up, um, and that typically causes the price of the finished products to go up. It, it becomes a safe haven to fight inflation. When the other side of the coin is we have economic problems, oil becomes a place and any, any kind of commodity becomes a place for people just to plant money to fight inflation. They're willing to take the risk um, of planting their money in oil just as a place to set it so oil is going to depreciate less than the spending power of the dollar would. And you see that with commodities all the time in this kind of environment. So even so, there's a lot of economic factors in effect. So again, the, the original question is you know, how retails plan out is that a lot of retail traders, you know, you see that big oil spike and people try to think that oil trades like a stock, like it's a growth investment or something. I mean, the the rate of demand or the sorry, peak oil demand change, which is the first derivative demand, is, is kind of tapering off, right? The oil, the demand growth is not, is not really increasing as much as it used to. And you're just kind of seeing this the same old geopolitical game between OPEC and the rest of the world. And in reality, you know, you can't trade oil like it's going to rally up and keep rallying. And it's not comfortable at 100 bucks. It's never been comfortable at 100 bucks. Uh, it's very rare that we do break that. I think this is probably maybe the fourth time in history I've seen it break above 100 bucks uh, when you adjust for inflation. The average price of oil year over year is between like 30 and 40 bucks. So, you, you know, oil just doesn't really have the ability to just sustain, um, you know, high levels. But we do know that when we did sell off after 2009, it took, you know, six or seven years, oil just retrace that sell off. So whatever we sell off from, you know, from high to low, oil's going to kind of sustain that high for a long time. It really takes a long time for prices to normalize. And so since the conflict that caused first oil rally in 08, uh, you know, it took maybe six or seven years to rally oil to that point uh, since September 11th. But then it took nearly uh, 12 years for oil to come back down and stabilize it, you know, 30, 40 bucks for the longest time. And so it, or actually, I guess I would say 2016, so more like eight years. So it's, it takes a while for oil to reset. And, and the idea is that as prolonged conflict can bring more people to the game and more oil producing countries to the game, you're going to start to see a lot of the um, sanctions and things create even bigger, uh, I guess, demand for these contracts because who can and can't ship to whoever else it's really hard to find new oil for your refinery if you're not uh if the person you always have got it from can't give it to you anymore and the person that has a boat to transport the new reactor to you 
or the new piece of equipment to you can't ship it over because there's a backlog there. There's no shipping crates. And then of course they can't even build it in the factory because everybody's still in that factory is laid off from COVID. So, you know, it's a whole bigger problem than just Russia. When you have to talk about oil, it's a big, nasty logistical nightmare. And when you trade commodities, a lot of people, you, you know, try to look at just a chart and technicals. You have to also know that, you know, catalysts kind of ignore technicals and any catalyst that comes through when it comes to commodities, uh, there are so many little things that happen and so many little things that happen while you're sleeping. That's the worst problem about trading oil. And so you have to be very careful trusting a lot of the technicals. Uh, you have to assume that if there's no catalyst, then it's okay to, to use them. Uh, but you always have to be aware and always have to use stop losses when you trade them because you have to know where that supply and demand is going to be. Or sorry, where that, uh, that, I guess, support and resistance is going to be that you really need to know... Um, you know, what's really bad globally to stop you out of your trade. You can't just trust it because it went up, it's going to keep going up. So I guess that was my point there. I know it was a little long winded with a bunch of facts and numbers. I don't think that we're, we're going to recover from this easily. I don't think, I don't think we're going to sell off really hard. I put some posts up a little bit ago that showed the kind of my calculations. And I know TSR is going to touch base on some of the technicals in a second. Uh, we had, uh, let me share really quick. The USO, which is the, the largest commodity pool uh, in the US, uh, I think they're in the US, uh, largest commodity pool for oil, at least, um, they have been trading kind of really on the, on the net. Um, yeah, so there's liquidity on the USO, which means the market's been just kind of finding these liquidity pockets. We get really close to monthly expiration of options. Usually you'll see the market tend to want to drive towards one of these prices. 66 bucks on the USO is that level. And we're sitting right at 69 with a little bit of downward pressure from hedging. I think oil does have a lot of support there as long as we don't break through that 65 level. You know, it might stabilize and actually kind of ramp back up. You know, as, as commodities are getting a wave up, I mean, sorry, uh, equities are getting kind of a squeeze right now. I think a lot of people might start getting squeezed out of their longs in oil and throwing money back into equities. So just, just, or a lot of the shorts as well, they might start covering. So you have to be, kind of conscious of the fact that oil is just a haven for a lot of investors to hide money from the problems inflation will cause. So, you know, any shorts might cover and just hold oil prices pretty high for a little bit. Um, I also posted the XLE, which is going to be that, uh, the energy sector. Let me see if I can go to that guy really quick. Let's scroll down. And XLE is also kind of trading on the, the bearish side of liquidity. But it's getting a little positive hedging, which again, today equities market got a little stronger than the commodities market. So you're starting to see a little bit of hold, I guess, um, that 71 level on the XLE. And that's kind of a little bit of a support, but still trading below 72, which is kind of that bearish side of the monthly options, is still not super bullish on it. So we'd have to squeeze some shorts pretty hard. That All that just tells me is that the market's not rallying on longs. It's just getting short covering. Um, and I guess the XLE, the energy stocks. So we'd really have to see the market, I guess, push into that 72 and a half level or higher just to see a little bit of bullish momentum. So um, there's a lot going on here and you know, just kind of my, my take on all of that, but hopefully that's a lot of information for you guys. Feel free to ask me anything else if y'all want to. Yeah, yeah, awesome, Matt. Definitely love the deep dive there. Feels like we've now, you know, for anyone that's been in here, I feel like from the start, you really now have a comprehensive understanding of a lot of what goes into this industry, plus a historical perspective to what these prices look like. Are they sustainable? You know, and so on and so forth. So I want to kind of lean into now 
for retail investors that are coming in here, opportunities to trade this uh, both short and long term. Um, so definitely going to ask my speakers, you know, pull up a little bit on the chart side. Also, for anyone that hasn't, you know, been in a bullish ripper space before, my name is God Blacksburg. I run the Wolf account, which you can see if you're co-hosting my co-host Stock Market News, Evan and I both contribute to this bullish rippers account on a weekly basis. I get the opportunity to do multiple spaces. I do a power hour space every Monday. We do also either an industry specific space or a market sentiment space, typically Wednesday nights, but it moves around. And then Evan also does a long-term investing space every Thursday at 12, plus a bunch of tweets from here. Really great tweets about earning the market, financials. Uh, there's some good comedy in there. So if anyone hasn't already, we're doing our best to get this account to 20K. If you're following one of our accounts, the Stock News account or the Wolf account. This is a great account for you to add to your timeline and your repertoire. Evan, anything you want to add on, first off, you know, the oil and gas section as well as the bullish ripper side? No, dude, that was great. Definitely not going to have much to add on the oil and gas uh, side of this, much more of the uh, learning part of it. And I love to, uh, this was a fantastic spaces. I, I really like the format of it. You know, I, I do feel like as from my perspective and my knowledge level of the oil and gas space, this has uh, helped fill in a lot of gaps and, you know, start the trail for some future questions. So love it. Big shout out to all the speakers who came up here and helped us make this such a fantastic space so far. I know we still got a little bit more to go. And yeah, shout out to Rippers uh, for, you know, a lot of great spaces, content, a lot of fantastic tweets, a little bias there. But, uh, but yeah, check them out. And, and thank you, Wolf, for uh, helping us put these together. Super excited and uh, yeah, ready for a ski moving. Absolutely. So I'm going to pass it to Danny now. And then if you kind of want to come back in afterwards with any questions that would work, I'll probably have to end around 9.30, actually, because I have jury duty in the morning. So I've got to be up bright and early and I have a bunch of stuff to do tonight before that. So Danny, I wanted to come to you. I feel like we've gotten a really good look into, you know, what goes into the macro side. Now I'm curious from the trading side, I know you always have your charts and setups. Um, what are you looking at within the oil and energy industry? You know, what are some of the charts telling us? What are some of the names that stand out to you? Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, obviously, no doubt about it. Oil and gas have been the play of the last couple of months, <clears throat> but I, I think unfortunately, you know, for those that that have been in for let's say pretty much this year, I would say the last two and a half three months. Um, it's been a really nice ride, especially looking at the, the broader market, which is pretty much been tanking. Um, but I do feel like we're in a position now where we're a bit extended to the upside. And obviously we've seen oil prices come down dramatically, you know, over the last week or so. And um, right now, what I'm looking for from a technical perspective are, are those pullbacks. Um, I really like watching that 21 EMA on the daily chart. And we're starting to see some names come down to it. Um, some actually have actually, uh, you know, basically gapped under it. I think, you know, ZOM, XOM uh, was tapping that 21 EMA last week, or I apologize, on Monday. And then Tuesday gapped down. Uh, today, we're, we're holding right on that 50 SMA. So that, you know, that's looking pretty ugly. Um, but, you know, a company like Chevron, they still are, are holding over their 21 EMA. Uh, so they, they only had two red days with the last two days with that gap down. 
uh, prior to about 12 to 15 days of, of uptrend. So, you know, anytime, doesn't matter what market you're in, whether it's oil and gas or technology, if you have a stock that runs really hard, gets too extended over its key moving averages, you have to believe at some point it's going to pull back. It's just the law of nature. It likes to revert back to the mean. And for me, the mean usually is that 21 EMA. And so, um, you know, just looking at some charts, I think, you know, Chevron is one certainly that I've been watching. Um, AR, uh, Antero Resources is something that I've been watching. Actually, that's not oil and gas. Uh, apologize. Um, just have oh, one second. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Zom and Chevron, ConocoPhillips is another producer, you know, but what's interesting, too, is, you know, as as different <laughs> as different as, um, you know, commodities trade versus, rel you know, relative to regular stocks, you know, the type of setups look really the same. You know, XLE had a beautiful cup and handle going into the end of the year. And once it broke out, oil shot up and and we made the perfect measured move extended a little above that and now we're pulling back so um yeah i mean I, i'm not seeing tremendous opportunity right now i agree with what matt said i think we're you know oil prices are here to stay you know between that 90 and 100 dollar range for a little while a lot of supply chain issues a lot of noise going on um, with OPEC and with the oil producing countries. So no need to repeat what was said, but I, I don't see a tremendous opportunity for the type of move that we saw from December to, to March. I, I think that was a really big move. If you caught it, congratulations, but don't expect a big, massive move like that in the next three to four months. I, I think now that the rate hikes are behind us, I think the market starts to cycle somewhere else and whether that's back into technology or back into, you know, I, we've seen fertilizer stocks uh, move, you know, who knows where the money is really going to start to flow to. But my my gut feeling just based on what I've seen in the past and what I'm seeing in the charts now is the majority of the move is done. Maybe we can catch some things to the downside, but you know how my what my philosophy is. I'm looking for relative strength in the market, and I'm not necessarily putting my eggs in the oil and gas market basket for now until something changes. Awesome, Danny. Appreciate the insight there. Thank you for the charts. And yeah, certainly a bit overextended, but not something that some you know a lot of people want to come in and bet against right here. So I like that 21 EMA. Are there any other indicators that you found have been working pretty well with this industry? Not specifically. I mean... You know, I'm a very, very much a technical based trader, so I'm always going to use the tools that I use. I look at a chart regardless of what the commodity is. Uh, I think Fibonacci works quite fine. The TTM squeeze, the anchored VWAP, they all work relatively similar on all kinds of charts. Doesn't really matter what you're uh, what you're trading. Um, you know, it's just it's just the velocity of the move. You know, you don't necessarily see oil and gas move like tech stocks. And that's kind of what we've seen in the last four months. So right then and there, you have to take, you know, take a moment and pause and say, well, this is pretty abnormal. You know, this is not normally how oil and gas moves. So something else is obviously going on. And then you have to put the caution hat on uh, and, and think, okay, well, if I'm going to be in a trade, I've got to be more cautious because as fast as something like this goes up, 
likely means that that rubber band effect is going to happen. It's going to snap right back. And I think that's partially what we're seeing now. Uh, what I'd like to see, honestly, is is for the market to stabilize a bit. Uh, you know, in this in this day and age, right, with everything going on geopolitically, I, I think it's going to be hard to find any kind of stability. But I think it's going to be more... Um, you know, top down, you, you know, it's going to be more, what are the oil producing nations say, you know, what are, you know, what, what's the U.S. going to do uh, in regards to oil reserves and production? Uh, I, I think it's going to be legislated down versus, you know, having some kind of supply and demand push us higher or lower. Sorry about that. Just coming back to the you. Yeah, I think that's a great point there, Danny. Okay, Evan, we ran in almost an hour. We had really, really great insight tonight. Um, I would love to, you know, <laughs> kind of felt fill up the whole hour. Do you have any individual questions you want to go with, or I feel like we could come, we could do is kind of go around to each speaker. To you, first off, you know, any thoughts in response to what other speakers said, any other things, and then probably start on the closing remarks because we could probably go another thirty minutes there. Sorry for the background noise. I am on the streets in the city. But yeah, I'm totally down for that. Wolf sounds good. Maybe would love to hear what what some of the stuff that uh, the speakers there's something we should talk about for next time next spaces any topics for that so uh but yeah i'm excited to roll around whatever you got okay uh so we are gonna go into that but before we do go around for you know kind of responses and closing comments i saw uh is it Soheb? yes Soheb. yep perfect so i'd love to hear your thoughts on the conversation sure um just my question um is uh, like the using technical analysis in order to uh, buy and sell oil equities. Um, uh, how challenging can that be? Because um, I just, I personally find it uh, with equities that, you know, price taking equities. Um, it's, it's tough to really get the implications. I mean, if, if it's, if it's, if it's not a commodity company, uh, you know, you could potentially be easier, but on a, company that is predicated on on world markets for the underlying commodity uh it seems that it could potentially be a challenge i've, I've tried doing it and i just found uh not as much success relative to just um, focusing on the macro outlook of the commodity and then looking to see which company can best take advantage uh of the macro outlook that that i currently believed in so i just want to uh, ask this question to the individuals that exclusively uh, use technical analysis um, as to, you know, how successful that approach is relative to somebody taking a more fundamental approach. Danny, you want to touch on that one? I mean, it's probably not a question for me because I'm a pure technical trader. I, I don't put fundamentals, uh, you know, for, you know, front and foremost. Um, and I also... I'm not a commodities trader. Um, I'm jumping on the bandwagon in the last few months because of what's been going on, you know, just in the in the oil and gas market. So I'm not traditionally a trader that would trade oil and gas, but I'm more a, a trader of opportunity because that's where the opportunity to trade to the upside was. Um, I think Matt was talking a little more eloquently about trading, so I don't, maybe he would be a better person to answer that question. And okay, so in in this case, uh, Danny, with what you're doing, uh, I find in in for as long as since um, since 2020, um, they really could move in a pattern that is not as 
predictable. You know, they just move, you know, to their own whims. Uh, things, you know, oil is political in nature. There's a lot right. of, you know, so using these charts um, is tough, you know, because it, it really doesn't take into account of what's taken place and all the noise. Because it's not just, you know, if you're, 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 you're charting with a tech stock, there really, you know, isn't much external influences happening around the world, you know, uh, a refinery blowing up in Iraq or, you know, a pipeline blowing up in Venezuela that could have a significant impact on the price of crude that would then have an underlying impact on on the, the price, on, on, on your equity um, in the price that they're going to be taking uh, for their barrels. So this is why I'm just trying to like, I'm just trying to get a better understanding of how useful uh, that approach could be when you're dealing with commodity companies um, relative to, you know, a more fundamental approach. Yeah, I think in, in, in trying to answer your question, I think you have to deploy different types of risk management um, because there's that overnight risk. So, you know, it, it all depends on what your approach to the market is. If you're, day, if you're trying to day trade versus swing trade. For me, I'm more of a swing trader. I'm not necessarily, I do day trade, but I don't day trade commodities. But I'll swing trade commodities. Like, like I said, I think this was a big breakout that was, was looking to happen. The technical setup was there. But for me, because that is not necessarily my bread and butter, I will deploy stricter risk management protocols. I'll have tighter stops. I'll scale out versus scaling in. As a swing trader, I normally scale into trades. You know, I'm, I'm building a position on the way up. When I trade things that I'm not comfortable trading, but I'm comfortable trading the pattern, I'm taking a bigger position at first and I'm scaling on the way out. So for me, that's how I manage risk. And that's how I've managed risk you know, in, in my oil and gas plays. So, and these are, these are, these are companies, right? Does you're not, so the, the, we're talking about equities, right, Danny? Yeah, I'm trading companies. I'm not trading the actual underlying assets. I, I just wanted to make a, a point. So you, if, if, tell me if I'm getting that name right. Um, is that, uh, I think the most valuable thing, if anyone wants to trade oil and gas is to your point, to start by understanding the underlying commodity, and it's just my two cents, start by understanding the, the basic supply-demand picture. I mean, I, I sat down for more hours than I'd like to admit looking at refinery outages, output, global demand, and I, I would model it on a U.S. basis because that's a great indicator for the rest of the world. And we were very, were very large percentage of the global output, but we're also very representative of what the world will do in terms of refinery outputs. And and then I would ask the first basic question of how tight is the market, you know, and that that can start your cornerstones of your thesis. Then I would move up to okay, what are the other underlying principal outcomes that can happen? Right, these geopolitical events. Or, you know, the techs, uh, I, I mean, in general, people could make money in and out of oil into tech and vice versa. And those, there's those, you know, there's, there's money flowing in and out of sectors all the time. But I think you so, always... So, Jack, have... do, do you yeah. see the constraint as, as with, from the refinery angle? Or do you see the constraint from the, the pumping 
uh, uh, supply pumping angle? So like, where, where do you see the bottlenecks coming from? Right, right now, I would definitely view the refinery maintenance schedule that happened for the last three months as excessive. And I also think that the fact that the U.S. did not put enough capex into increasing output, but that's a historical context, right? So it's not it's not as if that's a because of X, Y, and Z. It's because we didn't we didn't put capex into oil and gas. Oil and gas didn't want to spend on it. The government didn't want oil and gas spending on additional capex. So I mean that's that, that's years in the making. That didn't just happen this year. That that happened over the last three years. And so, and that was the trend. The trend was lower for longer. You guys have to learn how to survive with a thinner budget. And because of that, in the time when oil hits 135 and everyone goes, well, where's all the oil? You know, you can't just flip it on with a switch. So it's, it's, it's a three year, three to five year compounded problem there. And then you had a bad refinery uh, maintenance season because of the freezing down in Texas and other, you know, additional variables. Um, And then you had Saudi uh, not increasing, Venezuela not jumping up to increase. And then you have Iran and Iraq not meeting. You know, there's no one to meet that delta. And so until that delta is met somewhere, um, you're going to have that upward pressure. I'm not saying where the upward pressure is because, you know, I would fail to I, I don't like to predict anything for that matter. But that should help educate your parameters to your max and your min. And so I think the min has moved up. The min was probably you know, 35, 40 bucks, neglecting the negative price in oil that, you know, happened. And now your max is probably, you know, where it was, but it it should calm down, you know, but for it to calm down, you need more uh, supply coming on. Jackie, so you were saying that the government was not investing in oil, but my understanding is, is the companies, the producers themselves that are choosing not to grow as much as they previously would. So they're just focusing on just maintaining uh, declines and holding even. Um, so that, that's just my understanding. So um, it's not so much as the government that, that, that is there, the producers themselves are choosing not to grow. That's, that's a fair statement. But, and, but that's, that's stemming from, you know, the root cause of that is public sentiment of oil and gas. And that bleeds through to capex with banks and loans for upstream projects, and so the appetite for loans for upstream has gotten choked because of all of the all of the ESG and sustainability conversations. And so when Exxon goes to apply for an upstream loan for additional things, let's say in Ghana or some other place, some of the projects that would have been green lighted become more difficult to get through. So it's a it, it's it's you know is the tail wagging the dog? I don't know, but. Jack, just my my, uh, confusion is because my belief or I guess my understanding is that the reason um, they're not getting as much, you know, the ESG factor comes into play. But the primary reason is that American shale companies have been a poor stewards of capital. All right. Uh, So, you know, they their 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 shale, their shale play. It was a revolution. Uh, in 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 terms of being able to, it was revolutionary in, in terms of being able to pull oil out of that shell rock. However, they significantly overpromised and underdelivered for a period of seven years until investors got pissed off um, and and have left away. So the growth investors have left went away and they were replaced with value investors. And the value investors came in uh, with a focus 
uh, a dogmatic focus on returning capital to shareholders. And when you focus on returning capital, so when you focus on returning capital shareholders, naturally, you're not going to have the growth. So if you want growth, the market is going to have to incentivize that growth. And then that's when then you have the ESG overlay on top that's exacerbating the issue. But, you know, I, I my, my take on it, or I guess my, my thought is the reason we're not having meaningful production is because these companies are choosing not to more than anything else. And the only reason I mention is because when I look at the news and I look at everywhere else, is there's just, um, I guess maybe there's just, there's so much energy ignorance uh, in regards to the things that people are like presenting to the masses as to the reason that we have higher energy prices. Um, we were trending towards higher energy prices regardless of who took office. It was just a matter of time. I guess the, the people that that, uh, that that follow it very closely, guys like the Cornerstone Analytics, Mike Rothman, and, and, and um, you know, the Goering and Rosenzweig, and, yep. and, and some of the bigger guys, they were predicting that the world is heading towards an energy crisis in 2018 all right uh, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that you the, the US the Americans they are the swing producer they're the ones that came in and started grabbing market share from the Russians and the Saudis and the Saudis and the Russians tried their best to stabilize their market so people I guess the perception is out there is you know evil OPEC OPEC guys and, and whatever there's just so much I think misinformation is because they tried their best to stabilize the market so everybody could eat. But the American shell producers, they, they weren't getting compensated based on what their barrels, what they were getting for their barrels. They were getting compensated based on growth. So it was growth at all costs. Who cares? They got their compensation packages and flew off into the sunset. And uh, it hurt all of the energy companies globally, all over the world. Yep. For um, a long time. So... For, for, yeah, and, and now when all of these producers all over the world are hurt because of lower energy prices, now you have the under, under, underinvestment. Regardless of any ESG factor, if anything is profitable, anything in the world, you can best believe that capital will be allocated to Capital goes to where it can get the highest return. Um, and, and essentially, as a result of U.S. shale, prices were crashing, and as a result of the crude underlying crude commodity crashing, we had no uh, a, a no investment, uh, underinvestment. And then as a result of the poor returns, now it was easier for the banks to transition towards a green movement because you're like, oh my God, you know, these yep. shitty oil companies yep. aren't even making, you know, they're, you know, we, we barely even covered the cost of inflation. You know, it's easier to just now virtue signal and say, you know what, no more oil since you've just been such shitty uh, capital allocators for the past couple of years. Now, what do you end up having as a result of that? Now you end up having something special because supply now is constrained. And on top of that, the biggest swing producer, which is American Shale, they've drilled their tier one, tier two, a lot of their their, their tier one acreages. Uh, and on top of that, you know, their break evens were not as advertised. They're significantly higher. Uh, they were saying that they could break even at $25, $30 a barrel. Um, their break-evens are more like $40, $45. Um, and so, so then in 2018, the, 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 the early movers, 
Uh, and sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, pay to be early because, you know, they, they were right, but got their heads blown off uh, as a result of uh, Trump's very active uh, management uh, by, you know, he what he did is he, he tricked the Saudis into overproducing by telling, uh, this is why there's distrust, right? There's a backstory to it. Uh, he, he, he told the Saudis, listen, I need you guys to overproduce because I'm going to uh, uh, sanction Iran. And then once the, the, the Saudis overproduced, he's like, you know what, never mind, I changed my mind. It was all, you know, the, they were just doing just temporary band-aids, short-term band-aids, whatever they, and the nature of, you know, doing these short-term posturing and maneuverings end of the day you end up running out of movement you end up running out of place right and that's where we've eventually gotten to now now biden can go and on his hands and knees and beg and plead and do whatever nobody wants to hear anything because they remember you know you know what took place under trump and how they got you know burned and and, and so forth so uh, you know uh, my I, I try my best to be apolitical in, when, when approaching uh, the, the, the commodity, just because, you know, it's there's no, I've found um, through my experience, just the, it's just a matter of shades of gray, right? There's no real absolutes, but the ultimate, I guess, the, the ultimate summation I wanted to share is the fact that the guys that were early in 2018 they got they end up getting smashed because of you know uh, Trump's policy and being an active manager of, of energy prices through what he was doing. So they weren't able to get the reap rewards. And then once you end up in a situation like that, it takes a while for the inventories to rebalance. And then by 2020, early 2020, um, all of them were super excited. They were like, "Oh my God, we're really entering into a structural bull market here." COVID happened. And it just blew everyone's head off. You know, some of these fund managers were down 80%. I mean, you look at Kathy and she's down 50, 60. I mean, that, you're down 80%, 90%. Um, and, then, and then what ended up taking place is the individuals that were able to see past the fear and recognize that the world's going to need energy. And the bull thesis that took place, now you end up with a situation that is getting exacerbated. So if you have a thesis that, you know, we're, we're starting to uh, uh, demand, is starting to outstrip a pumping capacity, you end up in a situation now where maybe 30%, 33% of, of uh, uh, American energy producers go out of business. Um, and, you know, now you have guys that are laid off, you've got, you know, so you have a decimation. And on top of that, because of now the ESG thing, everyone, governments, especially in Canada, governments looked at them and was like, oh, well, you know, you, you guys are choking. No, really? It looks that bad. All right. Let's see if we can stick out, you know, fire hose into your mouth. Right. Uh, and, and, and the messaging was we're entering into a frontier. And now is the opportunity we can say no more oil now that we see them on their deathbed. And 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 uh, uh, now when we get out of it, we're going to enter a new world of remote living and uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the electric vehicles. And so as a result of that, uh, there was a lot of prognostications as to the new world. Um, and then people were pumping an idea of a reality that far superseded where we currently actually were. So now the individuals that were able to get in um you know, they, they saw the tech bros and everyone else, you know, celebrating and having a great time and, and, and the Bitcoiners and whatever, because the guys that came in, they didn't really rally significantly till the end of the period of 2020. 
Um, it, it was just a matter of trying to get more clarity as the crude inventories around the world stabilized. Uh, at the beginning of 2021 is when we hit about a month later, somewhere in mid-January, we hit uh, $60 a barrel. Uh, and then uh, we ended up getting uh, the, the situation in Texas, the polar vortex that came in, and we saw a spike in prices. And that's when the, the, the party started, uh, uh, started meaningfully taking off. And then you ended up getting from that period of February all the way until uh, the end of last year, you got individuals that were able to see about what, 400, 500, 600% returns last year. Um, and it came by buying and just sitting on your ass. Like it's pretty much all. And I was, I was sitting with, a, with, with one individual, a pretty notable fund manager in, 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 in the country. And he was telling me a monkey could have generated these returns because all you had to do was pick up an energy company, all right, that, um, that you knew, you know, didn't have a significant risk of bankruptcy, sit on your ass for 12 months, and then you would have been up 300, 400%. So th the reason I mention this is because I feel that the commodity plays are a little bit different in the sense that they require significant, the majority of the time to be placed in understanding where the macro outlook is, the higher direction. Once you figure that out, then you could buy almost energy, like any energy company, uh, with few exceptions, of course, and they will all do well. All you really need to do is, is get the top right. Whereas I feel if the approach taken, which is, you know, grabbing, you know, 2%, 5%, 6% here and there may not be as meaningful as it would be uh, in, in, in the equities um, that are not price takers. So this is, I just, uh, I, I went a little bit long-winded, but I just wanted to just share a quick, for the new guys, a quick, uh, you know, just A, a to B in regards to the, the outlook uh, on the trade. And just a suggestion or recommendation uh, for anybody that is interested uh, in, in, in getting into the trade. Another individual talked about uh, 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 upstream, midstream, and downstream. Your upstream, guys, is where you're going to get your highest sensitivity to a rising oil price. So if you are trying to get torque, that's where you want to be. Um, the reason you want to be there is because when the oil price will rise, so is you going to be so so is your equities as long as they don't have significant hedging in place hedging just essentially means it's you're locking in a certain price point so say you know the banks tell you listen we want to protect our side downside by loaning you some money just say that you know 20% 30% 50% even some companies that you're only that you're going to accept to lock in uh, uh, $60, $70, say, for example. So if it's $70 and the commodity is trading at $100 and the company is losing $30. And so that's what the hedging uh, the hedging is. But for companies uh, that aren't as hedged, especially if they got low decline assets, those are the gems um, that are really going to take off. Now, you can say, okay, well, maybe I want to be like, what's I want to keep my eye out 
you know, across the corner for maybe the next play, the next play um, beyond the, the, the EMPs, in my opinion, is the services, all right, the service companies. Why? Because at some point, we're going to get to a point where we're going to need to meaningfully increase production to satisfy the world's appetite, ever-growing thirst for energy. And who is it going to be? It's going to be the service guys um, that, 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 that we're going to be knocking on their doors. So now I, th- I personally believe it's too early for service. Um, there's a lot of value left to be had in the EMPs. And there's structural issues in regards to um, materials and people and labor on the services side. So I'm personally positioned uh, still in the EMPs. But if anyone else wants to be like, you know what, I want to be a little bit ahead of the market, you know, you can consider the services. Uh, in my opinion, if you're in midstream, which is like Enbridge and TC Energy and Gibson, you're, you maybe, maybe it's like you want to play it safe, but they're just transportation, right? They're not, you know, a lot of the, the contracts are fixed. And uh, if oil becomes 200 tomorrow, you're still moving the same amount of crude. It's not, um, there's not as much of a material impact uh, if you're investing in, 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 in the midstreamers. The good thing about the midstreamers, though, is their, their dividends. Their dividends, I mean, you can get 7%, 8% uh, from some of these companies. Um, they're very stable. You can come in and you can go into these midstreamers they're going to be used. The networks are there. Um, so it's a nice, stable thing that you can think, okay, maybe for the next 20 years, 25 years, I'm going to have a nice stable. Whereas the EMPs, you might run into issues like Vermilion Energy, where the party was great for as long as it lasts and everyone having a great time with their you know, outrageously high dividend. But then when oil prices started to become more volatile, all of the free stuff and all the fun stuff disappears. So that's, you know, um, I think I just wanted to say that because I felt like it might add uh, a lot of value to your listeners, Bullish, especially for the new people that are looking at what sectors are performing and getting attracted to it. Um, Now, here is the other thing that I also want to mention is that when you compare energy globally, energy names all over the world, um, the one, in my opinion, that s- s- looks to be the most undervalued is Canadian energy companies. Um, if you were trading or if you were investing in oil companies in 2020, in 2021, uh, American energy companies would have been better. Uh, and the reason for that is because, you know, America is where all the money is. Um, and uh, so that's so soon as oil was recovering, capital went there first. They recovered significantly faster than the Canadian energy companies. Uh, and once they've, they've you know, made their movement, they've moved more rapidly. Uh, and once they've done their movement, the Canadian companies significantly lagged. So I guess if I know what I know now, I would have started with the American energy companies first. And once they've made their move, I would have shifted my capital to Canadian energy names. But now that, you know, that they've made the run, the Canadian energy names are significantly undervalued relative to their American peers. They've got significantly better management. They've got better balance sheets, not as much debt. Um, And the nature of the geology fundamentally, right? Um, It's, um, they're they're, they're low declines. And in a place where 
you're stabilizing, your declines, and you're not growing, decline rates will matter. So I feel that moving forward, that these Canadian energy names are going to be getting a premium relative to their American peers. Uh, and on top of that, our government doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. And as a result of that, our currency, our, you know, we have a petrodollar, mm -hmm. and our currency hasn't taken off relative to what it typically does when 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 energy makes its run. Um, so this is, you know, we've, we've seen a total decoupling um, on, on, on the currency from uh, the the uh, from from energy prices. And what does this mean? It means that your producers are now making significantly more than they typically would. So when oil's at 100, these guys are making $125 a barrel. It's absolutely incredible uh, how much these guys are making as a result of the added um, currency left there. So uh, I'll wrap it up with that, and I'll pass it back to you, Bullish. And, uh, and, and, and thanks for hearing me out, fellas. Awesome. Yep. Appreciate the information there. Uh, sad. It looks like Jack had to drop off, but definitely a great back and forth. Thank you for that. So we are nearing 10 p.m. We've almost been running for two hours. If anyone's been enjoying, like we said, we do these weekly. We also do power hours. Definitely make sure you're following the Bullish Rippers account. Again, I run the Wolf account. Stock Market News up here tweets from this account. So kind of the perfect love child uh, for everybody to be checking out. And then, of course, make sure you are looking at our speakers. They're awesome, super knowledgeable people. We try to get a variety of them on here from week to week just to cover topics that are in demand. All right, let's go around for some closing remarks. SoFlo, uh, been a while since we heard from you. Would love to hear any closing thoughts you have uh, or any other responses on the topic. Yeah, so uh, we, we definitely went into a very long discussion just now, um, and a lot of points were brought up. So I'm, I'm definitely not going to keep you guys waiting. I, I do have something I need to take care of just now. But, uh, you know, if, if you really want to do take advantage of investing opportunities within uh, the energy sector, I would say start off with learning macro movements and how uh, different catalysts move the markets. Bef uh, technical analysis is, is beautiful to use with trading and just getting better at trading overall. Uh, but again, if you want to get into the energy sector, it's, it's in my opinion, I, I tell people this all the time and it might it might make some people angry, but um by definition, the best time to have invested in the oil industry, in my opinion, has left. And I'm going to say this with Bitcoin. The best time, by definition, to have bought Bitcoin has already passed. By definition. I'm, I'm just being very black and white with what I'm saying. So in order to position yourself for big market moves, um, you know, without chasing or seeing what's hot is just understanding the economic parts and, and how these sectors get affected. So spend time learning. And, and that's really all I'm going to leave you guys with. Um, of course, I, you know, I, I do, if you don't mind me saying this, I do post about uh, every week I post about different momentum moves in the market as well as forecasts for that week as, as, as some of the large catalysts every single week. And that's some way I like to manage uh, being ahead of catalyst moves and economic movements as well. Uh, that's one way I'm able to apply technical analysis to those individual names or sectors based off of a weekly catalyst calendar. But have a great night, guys. Uh, I am about to, I, I'm live on TikTok right now, so I'm just going to go over some, you know, trade ideas for the week. Um, I hope you all have a great idea. I have a great um, week. I'm going to go ahead and jump out now, and I appreciate you guys. Take care, everyone. Awesome, Soflo. Great having you on. Good luck with the live stream. And 
you know, looking forward to the next one. I'm sure we'll run back another oil and energy one not too far off in the future. Okay, Matt, any other closing remarks from yourself? No, I I didn't even realize it's been going on for two hours. It's so much it's so much great information. I love hearing. Yeah, I don't I don't actually spend a lot of time actively trading oil anymore, uh, but I still like to follow it. It's always been my first love. And it's always great getting together with all of these really uh, fantastic uh, speakers here. Uh, if I pronounce your name, Sohai Abbas, did I say that correctly? Um, wow, it was great listening to you talk. It's the first time I've ever uh, listened to you talk, but it was, it was wonderful. Um, it's good to meet you as well. And of course, you know. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, um, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll um, just, yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I, I, I tried to be a, as brief as I could, but, you know, it's just energy is just such a just a mess on the macro level i i really tried to be brief a couple of the guys you know messaged me they were like listen you talk too much you got to slow it down but i really, no, I really no, tried no. my best to be as brief as i could but there's just there's just a story to it and underlying this and that's part of why you know the yes. decisions are made as to okay well let's not go too deep on the on the deep end and then just lose sight of the other sectors that are significantly easier to pick up right it's it's fantastic because it really highlights the importance that you can't just pick up a pick up a chart and start trading oil. And I hear people all the time talk about support here, resistance there, and you really have to understand that. And he he nailed it. You can't be simple when it comes to trading commodities. Half the reason I kind of moved away from oil and started working in, in uh, trading indices products. I, I went from oil futures to S and P futures because it's simply just easier to understand macroeconomics in um, in a diversified basket like the S and P has a lot fewer global catalysts that affect it than oil does. It's such a spaghetti bowl. Of or even, even Matt, yeah. even I think for the chartist and the technical analysis guys, I think it's just better to just trade the futures market just because it's, yeah. it's just not a lot of variables, right? You're just dealing with one variable and, and it, it works a lot better. But like the, the what if the equities is just one step behind as to what the futures. So there's just a lot of noise in between. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, and and it's hard. The future is uh, that's exactly what I've spent uh, the majority of my trading career trading directly trading futures instead of oil stocks, oil futures um, instead of the S and P itself. Uh, trading S and P futures exactly. There's a, you have a lot. The mechanics are different. The movements are similar, but you're you're hundred percent right. And it's really as everybody understand that's listening. It's just hard to wrap up why oil moves and such a black and white answer i mean all the things we've gone over supply demand production manipulation uh production cuts global demand the, the difference between the spot price and the contract price right now that commitment of traders thing i posted people are buying oil contracts just to guarantee the delivery of oil you can't phone your broker and be like hey i need i need a barrel of of a light sweet, or I need a tanker of light sweet crew tomorrow. They may say, "Yeah, the tanker's broken, and we can't get repair parts for it." Or somebody else bought it. We can't find it. The idea is that there's a lot of, I guess, um, dissonance between what people understand that moves commodities markets and what people are classically trained as traders to look at a chart and look for patterns. I'll tell you from years of trading oil, it's really hard to find patterns because. All of the catalysts that come through have no explanation other than straight manipulation. I mean, it just comes down to a great story I love to tell, and I'll be brief on this one. You know, there's a, a story that why the oil market crashed when we had the shale boom, right? Um, you know, we, we knew that Obama was going to lift the export ban, which made us uh, a potential supplier to China, who was rumored to stockpile oil in their strategic reserves, I think, in 2017, 
for the potential future invasion of Taiwan. This is all rumor and speculation. So what the Saudis did to prevent us from taking the market share was purposely flood the market to crash oil prices to kick us out of the game. Imagine your charts seeing that in a, in a, in a pattern, right? That is a massive game of chess that so many brilliant traders and brilliant players play on the global scene. And it's always a fun thing to study. and It is a horribly hard thing to trade. So um, that's so all Matt, I got to say. Matt, yeah. Matt, I just want to add something real quickly. Um, um, so what ended up happening was so the OPEC, they, they approached the American producers. And what they, what they said is, OK, let's you know come up with a quota so we can stabilize. But the Americans, the American bravado and, and, and the capital machine didn't allow for that. Was they like, said, yeah, you know, no thanks. Do your thing. Sorry. We're going to yeah, do no our things, thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so this is I just I just got to clear it up because and this is I think everybody should read the book Crude Volatility. The author might come to our spaces at some point. But this is just if anybody's trying to understand the energy market, this is this is a mandatory reading. Crude Volatility, the history of boom and bust cycles. Um, and it explains to you the critical role that these the the cartel plays in helping stabilize it. Because it, so, little think even if somebody was to consider what is the absence of the cartel, what is the absence? Wh what would you have? Prices would significantly because it, it's always a lag on effect. How would you know when you're producing enough? How would you know when you're not producing enough? You know, at one point back in the eighties, they had to send in the American military to stop producers from dealing oil because you know it was it was it was crashing prices and it just it led to a period of, of increased volatility so that you need with these commodities you need especially with with crude you need a, a governing body that can control you know how much each uh, uh, entities produce otherwise they're going to pump themselves into bankruptcy they're going to drill themselves into bankruptcy, I should say. So just, I just wanted to add that little um, thing on top there, Matt, in regards to the importance that these regulators play. 100%. So you also need it because uh, in, in that group of producers, there's, all, uh, there's often uh, political or even um, uh, military conflicts between them. So you almost need, uh, for multiple reasons, uh, not just related to economics. And so it's it's almost necessary for there to be an overseeing body for such a large um, supply of oil. And you're 100% right. And I'll tell you from my years, and again, I'm removed from trading oil in the longest time, so I may get some of my facts off a little bit. But what I remember um, was that when I would study or, or, or read about the moves that the, that the Saudis would play, uh, to get oil moving or production going there. I would say that they're the most brilliant traders on the planet of anything of anything. They make these finance guys and Wall Street guys look like chumps because the, the moves they make are so intricate. You read those oil reports, those OPEC reports that come out. It is almost like watching a master chess player play because they understand the game better than anybody. And not only the oil game, but the trading game. These guys are masters of financial markets, trust me. It was almost when you'd read it, you'd kind of get tingles on how masterfully crafted some of the positions and moves were. So it's a pretty neat thing. I'd like to read that thing you were talking about, by the way, as a closing closing remark. So send it to me if you don't mind. Awesome. Great, great stuff. So we're past 10 p.m. here. So Danny, I'm going to go to you, and then we're going to wrap things up. Totally. I'll keep it really short for you, man. I, I feel for you. I know you got jury duty tomorrow. Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't, like I said earlier, I don't trade direct oil products, but um, the underlying picks and shovels, <clears throat> they, they tend to have pretty good chart setups and I've done pretty well. But I really like what SoulFlow said earlier. I think the best time to, to buy these oil and gas names has already passed. Um, could you squeeze a little more out uh, of the tank? Yeah, absolutely you can. But I'm moving on to bigger and better things. I, I'm going to watch to see where money rotates next. And that'll that'll always be the play that I'll make. You got to know when to walk away, know when to show them, know when to fold them. So thanks for having me on, Gab. Appreciate it. Sorry I was late. Had some meetings that ran a little late. But uh, really uh, nice to hear from you, Sohab. Really great information, Matt. Always, always a pleasure to be with you, my friend. And uh, I'll catch you all again next time. Perfect. Yep. It was really, really good one. Hope everyone in the audience came away with a lot of education here. I feel like I learned a ton, uh, really from a large-scale perspective and also a historical perspective, which is super important to know because history does tend to repeat itself. And we've seen that over and over within the market. I'm going to go over to my awesome co-host, Stock Market News, to see if he has any other remarks before we wrap up here. I know you uh, may be in a place where it's not great to talk. Did you want to say anything? Yeah, no, just appreciate you for doing this. Big shout out to Bullish Rippers for bringing all of us together on this uh, Wednesday night to talk about some oil and gas. Shout out to SoFlo, who's had a drop off for kind of sparking the idea and coming to us. And, you know, a couple of big shout outs to the speakers for making it such a fantastic space. And as always, Wolf Financial, the king of spaces, Gob, the guy talking behind the Bullish Rippers account right now. Uh, if you enjoy these spaces, Make sure you are following the Wolf account and the Bullish Rippers account, but that Wolf account is definitely a must-follow if you enjoy this type of content. Uh, yeah, all for me. Keep it brief. Perfect. Yep, really, Unless really great. You just skip yep. jury duty tomorrow, but hey. I cannot skip jury duty tomorrow, as far as I know. Uh, we'll see. Maybe the government will come after me, but I'll try to do spaces from within the courtroom, see how that goes over. All right, a couple things in closing here. So first off, we have a bunch of stuff kind of running concurrently. So of course, we have everything we're doing with Rippers. If you are paying attention to what's going on on Fintwit, you might have seen that Rippers is co-hosting the largest March Madness spinoff tournament for finance that is going on right now. We have multiple participants up here. So Matt and Danny are backing assets in it. And if you go to the Wolf account, it is now the link in the Wolf account. You can go in, it's marketmadness.co, and you can enter into a free $1,000 waitlist raffle. So basically, that is just to uh, win $1,000 potentially. We're going to open brackets to be filled out on Monday, but this just basically gets you into a little bit of early access there. In addition to that, we also do have something for all of our charting people in the crowd. I know my trend spider people are out here. I see Danny. We are doing a big giveaway of a couple of trend spider plans, some trend spider swag. Uh, that is also on the Wolf page. I can go to the Wolf page and uh, you know retweet that on there more recently. But just go on the Wolf page and search Trendspider. Tweets are searchable, and that is worth several hundred dollars. So a couple things just to pay attention to. Uh, we're always doing some more giveaways. We have an Asset Dash one for that little Lemonheads, uh, and, and just more stuff going on. So hope everybody enjoyed the spaces and came away with something. Be sure to be following our speakers as well as this account. The next space. So I do have jury duty in the morning. So I typically do spaces. Thursday morning. Uh, I think Rippers is still going to have a space tomorrow. Uh, Evan, I will not be on, but I think somebody is going to bring the Wolf account on. And then I will have a space at 5.30 p.m. that I'm going to try to host that, Evan, you'll be on there. That's how to trade memes. 
Uh, but we will have to see how close I cut it with jury duty. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming in. Take care. Have a great rest of your evening. See you on the next one.